Hello! <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, um, yeah uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, who is it? Dr. Scott Powell. I'm not a special guest. I'm, you, I'm not even a guest. I'm. <laughs> you're a host. I'm, I'm here. We have a very special host for you today. Very special host. Two special hosts. Yeah. We, you're special too, Father. Uh, thanks. My name God is, made you special. My name is Father Peter Musk. And I am Scott Powell still. This is the word on the hill. <laughs> this we is are it, the lanky guy. And this is, we've never introduced it anywhere near like station this Station identification. Yeah. No, you usually have a- um, A song. Usually sing something. Yeah, yeah. Does we, it throw you off to have not sung? Um. You no, know, well, you, you know what's You're funny? Okay. It's like, I, like Scott and I have been having like this massively punk rock conversation. A punk rock conversation. <laughs> that, that <laughs> based on what we've actually been talking about, calling it punk rock is hard it's, for me. It's just like, like what is revolution and who's uh, who's on first, what's on second, who's on third? Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like we live in such a weird age. I was, I was. Times like, are hard. Times are hard. I was, I was taking a walk this morning and enjoying the beautiful weather Good and for the, you. Tree, the tree leaves changing. <laughs> And um, not and, the tea leaves, not the tea the leaves, tree tree leaves, tree leaves. And I was like, so I was, so I was just thinking to myself, I was like, you know, I'm kind of sick of history. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't like history being played out in front of me. And then oh, I was like, yeah. I was like, I was like, you know, because I'm finding it really hard to understand what God is doing in history right now. Because we're on the front end of it. Yes. And I was having a long conversation with some students about the nature of prophecy. We were talking about the Old Testament and how. And I get this a lot when I usually when I teach on the New Testament, or, you know, some some variation of how did people miss Jesus? How did so many people like you look back on all these prophecies in the Old Testament? It was so clear right. that he's the Messiah. How did everybody miss it? And I like to point out to people that it it's not clear in the least. Like we have 2000 years of hindsight to look back and be like, oh, that's what's going on. But you have all of these prophecies about, okay, there's a Messiah coming. God's going to put everything right. And he's going to be a mighty warrior who's going to get slaughtered by his enemies, who's going to defeat his enemies, who's going to be humbled by his enemies, who's going to come riding on a strong horse and defeat everyone, who's going to come humble and riding on a donkey and be spat upon. And you're like, wait, which one is it? What What is all this? Which, again, we look back in hindsight and we're like, oh, we see how that's all Jesus. But when you're in the middle of history... It just doesn't make any sense. Right. I, I like to think that, you know, there's going to be some day, if we make it to heaven someday, that we're going to look back on, like, the book of Revelation. Be like, oh, that's what it meant. Obviously, the seven-ended dragon was that, that stuff. But, you know, because hindsight is twenty twenty. But it really right. stinks to be in the middle of history, especially when you're watching it repeat itself and play out. You know that adage, um, those who, uh, how does it go? Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah. And those who do know history are just doomed to watch everybody else repeat it, <laughs> which is so much worse. Dude, uh, you made me think of the book of Revelation. If you ever look at the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation and the people who've actually tried to do- draw what the description of the Lamb of God is, <laughs> it's got seven horns and ten, t- like 12 eyes or 10 eyes or something. It's too much. And it, and it's like, it's it looks like a bad like metal album cover. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're like, very musically inclined today. Yeah, yeah. It's just really funny. It's because I got the angst in the heart. Like I got you. the angst. Angst. And so it's, but it, yeah, I look yeah. forward to, to being able to understand. Um, but you know, the, 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 the path between purification and understanding is the attitude of gratitude is praise. Attitude of gratitude. The attitude of gratitude is, is to say like, Hey, what is actually God doing? How do we know God in and of himself? It's, it's like when I get locked into petition, 
You know what I'm saying? Like, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord, please. When when I'm locked into petition, I've tried to create a tag inside of my own mind. Like a hashtag? A hashtag in my own mind that says, hashtag, be grateful. (laughs) All right. That's a good hashtag. Yeah, dude. I mean, yeah. There's there's a lot more we can say. I started a class (laughs) on Elijah and Alicia last night, and it just kind of reminded me of two things. Number one. It is always, always in the darkest times in the people of God that God sends the greatest heroes. That's just always the case. St. Francis, his times were rough, man. Mm, St. Ignatius of Loyola, Elijah himself, right? It's always in the darkest times in the history of the people of God that you have the brightest lights. And it tends to, I mean, you and I are pretty tapped into what's happening in the church, ecclesially, in the world, in the archdiocese, everything else. And it's so easy in our world because of social media and everybody's got a platform and we know everything at all times. It's so easy to focus on the macro level, like what's happening on the large levels, which God's redemption usually comes at the lower levels. He comes through the small things and the small ones and the ones who we don't notice and the people doing all of the little profound things. It's St. Therese's feast day a couple days ago, right? Um, And just, I, I was reminded of that in the midst of thinking on this large scale about how the world is disastrous and everything is crazy. <laughs> and it just makes me forget, no, the God loves to work through the little things, though. Right. And I'd, I'd always take my, my perspective off the little things. Yeah, which is brings us into the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Does it, or are you it, just in a hurry? I'm just in a hurry. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Wait, which is just... No, it, no, it's good. Well, it's, which is funny. It's our, it, it's it's uh, Sunday trumps Our Lady of the Holy Rosary. Is that what Sunday is? Yeah, that's... This the, is like the week of feast days. Yeah, yeah. Today's St. Francis. Franny. We had uh, um, St. Therese of Lisieux. I guardian the guardian angel, angels a couple of Archangels. The archangels, yeah. Our Lady of the Rosary. I mean, that's like... It's it's like the, but I like it's 27th Sunday in ordinary time, ordinary time. So ordinary um, time. Yes. 27th. First readings, Genesis 2, 18 to 24. Okay. Are kind of a small reading, not, not very significant. Come on, Father Peter. <laughs> That's a very significant reading. <sighs> Our responsorial Psalm is coming from Psalm 128 verses one through two, three, four to five. And excuse me, I have the hiccups. I have the hiccups, everybody. Dude. And six. And our response is coming from verse five. It's the La Croix. It probably is the Lacroix. Yep. Our second reading is the from the coffee of chapter two, verses nine to eleven. Oh, sorry, Hebrews. No, that's good. <laughs> Somebody, uh, a couple of people have sent either messages or emails saying, "I bet you guys are going to make the Hebrews joke," and so I was trying to make a concerted because of my rebelliousness and my personality. I'm like, "Well, I'm not going to make it now because everyone's <laughs> expecting we're going to make it." So I'm not going to make it. All right. You already said the Hebrews? I yep. wasn't paying attention. Uh, our gospel. Was, was that intentionally? Were you just trying to avoid no. me? No, I, I wasn't. Yeah, your, your rebellion brought to your, a psychological disorder. I know. This is how I work. Wait, what did you just say? Your rebellion brought me to a psychological disorder? Yeah, your inability to actually receive Shoot. words and phrases and adjectives. Times are hard, is what you're getting at. Yep. Well, speaking of times getting hard, Mark is our gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 through 16. <laughs> it's our parents' weekend. It's not our parents' weekend. No, it's like the it parents' weekend at parents C- weekend, yeah, yeah, which is just interesting. So the timing <laughs> of the universe is always kind of You've got to preach to all the parents about marriage and divorce. Yeah. That's a tough break. Yeah, it is. So um, speaking of, of that, Good luck. we have the kind of first couple. Yeah, we do. Genesis 2. Um, go for it. I have, I have a, I, what do I say? 
I've got a lot to say about a lot of things, but it's all sort of um, disorganized in my head. Mm. So our reading, it's it's Genesis chapter 2. And, okay, so a lot of you have listened to this podcast for a long time. And if you've been listening to it for a couple of years, then you may have even heard. I don't know what we said three years ago about the same topic. But I wanted, because the story of Adam and Eve, it's so well known and familiar. I had a little bit of a different take on it this time. Interesting. Which is kind of interesting. And it's not something that I came up with, but I wanted to pull from someone else. But it's this moment when God has created Adam, uh, the first human being, um, and the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make a suitable partner for him. And it's this moment, it's this kind of strange moment in the story of salvation history where uh, God makes all of the animals, he formed them out of the ground. This is the second version of the the creation story, right? Um, It's the zoom in. The zoom in, yeah. It's it's there's a, a literary structure called the synoptic resumptive technique, which a lot of us think that is what's happening in Genesis. There's kind of two versions of creation. There's like the the universal level of here's the six days of creation, here's all the things that are being created, and then around chapter two, it all narrows in on humanity and what's mm-hmm. happening with them. And so he creates all the animals and the birds and goes out to see what the man's gonna what the the human's gonna call them. And basically, he realizes none of these are, are suitable for companionship. Like, these are cool. It's nice to have a dog, and bears are neat, but none of them are a companion for me. They're not solving. And what this – John Paul II had a, had a huge – had a lot to say about this in what, what is often called his theology of the body. Well, what I love, though, is that as he's encountering all of these animals, he's actually expressing in a, his uh, – to name something. Okay. So, like – the naming of something. I love naming cars. <laughs> That's what it's, we're talking about. So it, it's 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 a claim of authority. Like there's it also implies some, a sort of relationship too, right? Like that there there's something really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I I think that we we attempted kind of Latin wise to name things like like yeah. if you want to see this kind of expression of humanity's um, understanding of authority and stewardship, you can just look at the name of all these Latin flowers and animals and things that exist within the body like like that there's a certain sense of authoritas that's been granted through this beautiful authoritas you tried to add extra authority by calling it authoritas (laughs) it's a very meta thing to have done (laughs) you added a kind of gravitas by calling it authoritas i see right through you That's exactly what I <laughs> yeah, just did, totally and, and I did it subconsciously, which yeah. is totally, totally, totally. Messed, totally messed up, man. So what we're dealing with here is what John Paul II in his Theology of the Body, which was really him just writing about anthropology. Sometimes Theology of the Body gets relegated to being about sex, which mm. there is a lot about sex. But he was trying to create, and he called it an adequate anthropology because right. he was trying to think about what humanity is. And one of the things he he really talked about a lot was this moment of original, oh, wait, what does he call it? Original loneliness, right? Mm. Is that what he called it? I can't as, as I was about I, to I, say it, a, I blanked on. I'm not a on. student of, of Theology of the Body, actually. Well, and, and so I was actually reading some Ratzinger this morning, Pope Benedict XVI. Before what, what? he was Benedict XVI, he was Cardinal Ratzinger. And he has one, one of... B-16 Baumer. One of his uh, most brilliant pieces of writings, which has the most misleading name of a text, is called His Introduction to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> very misleading. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's like, like, absolutely. I have to tell you, Introduction to Christianity, and I've got my original version of it here. Nice cover. Um, this was the first serious theology book I ever read. 
Oh, when I was an undergrad in college, it cool. was like the first one I kind of dug into, and I lo- I fell in love with it. And I've every it's marked up and underlined. It's just it's phenomenal. Yeah. But there's this chapter, and I read this particular section. It's mainly about the creed, and there was a section that, from the first time I read it, and I remember being a sophomore in college, and I had a class that I had to read this book for, and I was not a good student prior to this, so it was the first like book I ever read for a <laughs> class that I was supposed to read. I was gr- I was brilliant at skirting the system all through school. Okay, but I read this one, and uh, he had this section about the line in the creed that talks about Jesus's descent into hell. And what that means and what that was all about, which is something I actually never really got, right? What right. is he, basically he's, Ratzinger's talking about what what's happening on Holy Saturday. Right. It's this kind of weird moment in life that, I'll, I'll tell you how this ties into this okay. in just a moment, because I think it directly does. Jesus um, is- the deep sleep, yeah. Well, the deep sleep, yeah, I actually hadn't thought about the deep sleep part, but but- one of the principles that we always have to keep in mind is that Jesus is the remedy for all ills of human, all of humanity's ills, all of our wrongs, all of our sin, everything that is um, hard. Jesus actually gives us the antidote for. And before you actually get the story of original sin, and sin is when we broke our relationship with God and ate the fruit, you know, all that thing. Long before there's that, there's another problem in humanity. So original sin is not the first problem that we get in the Genesis text. Okay. The first problem we get is that man is alone. Right. There's loneliness. There is mm-hmm. this human condition that is problematic, that it's not good for us to be alone. Right. And Pope uh, Benedict, when he was Ratzinger, he talks about this in the section on what's happening to Jesus on Holy Saturday. What he says, yes, the deep sleep of Adam is put into a sleep, and remember Eve is taken out of his rib, and she's created, and this is a beautiful narrative. But but he says one of the things that Jesus does when he takes on our sin and our brokenness and he dies on the cross, he doesn't just die on the cross, then he descends into the dead. But he talks about Holy Saturday. Jesus takes on this pain of original loneliness. He takes on the aloneness of humanity. And he, he gives this long kind of discourse, which I think is absolutely profound about the nature of fear. What is it that we fear? And at the, one of the things that's at the heart of human fear is human loneliness. Mm. And he gives this example. He gives two really interesting examples. He gives this example about a child who has to walk through the woods at night who's inevitably going to feel frightened. And an adult, too, right? You have to walk through the woods by yourself at night. Right. It's frightening. There might be absolutely nothing to be frightened of. And you can see those same woods or something it's in like daytime. Cosette. Cosette? Yeah. We're, we're really heavy on the Les Mis today. Yeah, yeah. I've been rereading Les Mis. What is Cosette? Oh, Cosette does. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, I, Cosette, I, I see what you're that, saying. That's when she meets Jean Valjean. She does. Which, yeah, but there's just something objective about if, if you're in, That's fearful. What, what is there to be afraid of? Well, maybe nothing. And so he says it's really just the fear of fear. It is the aloneness itself. And he talks about, you know, the nature of fear. Usually fear has an object to it. So right. if you're afraid of a bear, you take away the bear, the fear is going to be gone. If you're afraid of, of um, heights, get down from the height. It'll be gone, right? You, you right. can remove the object of what the fear is. But human loneliness is sort of fear in and of itself. Mm. How do you rid yourself of that? Well, and he gives the analogy on the child in the woods all you need is an adult's hand to hold, and all of a sudden it'll alleviate the fear because wow. you're not alone anymore. You can hold a hand. Someone can mm. help to guide you. He gives another analogy about, and this is kind of a weirder one, about sitting, imagine sitting in the room with a dead body, a corpse. It's scary, and it's freaky. And even if we try to convince ourselves that it's not, he says, there's something really disquieting and dissettling about being in a room by yourself 
And I don't know how many of you have had that experience. I actually have had that experience when yeah. I used to work at a nursing home and I had to literally just wait with this person with this body for a while until the other people came. And it's just really freaky, which he points out is really weird because the dead body is far less of a threat when it's dead than it would be even if it was alive. Like right. there's nothing that can happen. It's literally a dead body. Right. But there's something about the experience because you're alone in that moment. Right. There's not life there. There's not a personhood. There's right. it's gone. Um and it, but but basically what he's talking about is this really profound human problem of aloneness which um is what the first reading is hitting on. And what Jesus does, what God does in first giving Adam Eve and humanity and a community. It's it's not, you know, Adam and Eve it's about marriage. Absolutely. We begin to get the inklings of the sacrament there. But it's really not primarily, it's not solely about marriage. Right. It's about that human beings need companionship. We need community. We're meant for community. We're meant for relationship. And without relation, and we can't have that same relationship with an animal. You can't have that relationship. I love being in the wilderness. I love being in the mountains. Right. But I can't be in the mountains indefinitely. I need human contact. Right. We'd actually all need that. It's necessary. There are people that, you know, go and live as hermits for well, a I mean, time. That's like the, the, the hermitic and chenobitic lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. That only the, the only hermits are the that that are allowed in a monastery to actually go and live alone are the ones who can actually maintain yeah. a chenobitic lifestyle one one that's actually going to be in communion with others yeah because it, it, because it's necessary because it's necessary to actually and even even hermits are never like alone forever yeah absolutely right but I guess the reason I bring in Ratzinger is that. This here in Genesis chapter two, we get the first and fundamental human problem, mm. which is the problem of human loneliness, which, according to Ratzinger, is precisely what Jesus takes upon himself mm. in the passion. Mm. He goes not only into death, not only to pain, not only into you know all of the hardships of the crucifixion, but he takes on human aloneness. Mm. That death itself, fear itself is taken upon him. Which doesn't actually make sense unless you know the story that actually got us there. So I, I think it's, it's just another take on this. And then we hear about, you know, Eve is made from Adam. It's, it, you know, people have made a big deal about how she is created from his side, not from, you know, the bottom or the top of him. He's not above her or below her. He is next to her. It's from his side, literally. And that's, there is a, there's a, um, a, uh, an equality that Genesis, and in a, in a world that doesn't always understand that, Genesis is really speaking to the equality of men and women. She is from his side. She is a companion. Right. She is not, a helper is one of the translations, but it's not this idea that she is less than Adam. No, she is from the side of. And Paul later on will make a huge deal about how in, in uh, dealing with the, the, some of the struggles between men and women, Paul actually makes a point of saying, hey, you know how every, uh, the first woman was created out of a man? Well, guess what? Now every man is created out of a woman because we all have mothers. And so in Christ, all things are equal, which is just kind of this beautiful. The Bible actually has a lot to say, especially we're in a time now about a lot of questions about how the sexes relate to one another and men and women and all the movements that are happening right now. The Bible actually has a lot to say about what that relationship is meant to look like, mm. a companionship, a, a, a relational, not to, to be a remedy of aloneness, even for a priest. I mean, that's why this is not solely about marriage. Right. It's about human relationship, right. which even celibates are meant for human relationship. That's Deeply. Not, what celibacy is all about. Right. Um, the New Testament's going to bring the marriage component in another way. But this is about remedying the problem of human aloneness, which is fundamental to where humanity's deepest fear lies. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Yeah, and I am uh, Scott. I am really thankful for your words today because I mean, like, I, 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 I think that like that's, I mean, that really it just touches something deeply inside of every married person, mm. every child, mm. every parent, every, every person who's lost in the woods, the single people, all the Cosettes of the world, all and the, the Jean Va- and all the Jean Valjeans in the world. Yeah. Like, like, mm. how mm. do we actually have companionship? Because, like, it, if you come back to, if you start to listen to the real difficulties that are in the world. It goes back to relationship. Yes. We are trying to figure out in secular culture and religious culture, how do we have real relationship? Because mm. our relationships are, are, are it's, it's where the attack comes. Yes, It's absolutely. where the brokenness comes in. It's saying, I look out and I, and, and when I live in my victim mindset, I say, I am fundamentally alone and mm. I, and nobody is for me. Nobody understands me. Nobody, Everyone's out to get me. And I can, you know, and I can spend my time on my pity potty and <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like have this pity potty party and like, th- oh, and I can say, I, you know, a, 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 nobody loves me. I'm not okay. And, and, and I, and I, and I go into this place of fundamental loneliness. What's that saying? Is it Yogi Berra or something that's saying it's not paranoia if everyone really is out to get you? <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that, 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 that was the up. wrong answer to my profound It was completely saying. wrong. Sorry. <laughs> get back to the profundity. That was the end of this. Just trying, trying to keep trying it light. And I know it. Uh, no, the victimhood, yeah. This, yeah, this paralyzation. Paralyzation. Paralysis. That that's actually paralyzation isn't the word, sorry. That, that's <laughs> paralyzationist. You have to add a Latin ending to, to make it authoritative and name Toss. it really. So it's like so that that's actually where we are where we exist is yeah, saying yeah, like yeah. we are meant for real relationship and how do we find real healing in that relationship? Absolutely. So I think that, that we can actually move into like because because the Lord is actually speaking to that f- that foundational loneliness by saying yes you are made for communion yeah and I'm going to start to show you and give you a pattern of what communion looks like uh, of this complementarity from the side to have a companion on the journey and and, and even authoritas yeah. to be able to actually yes. look and to say like no no you are above certain things so you, there is an order of being because it's showing you what companionship is not right because it's hard to understand what it is unless we understand what it's not which right. adam has to experience right which is important now the psalm here's the psalm is really interesting um because the, the psalm i mean there's there's a there's a surface level it talks about your wife will be like a fruitful vine um your children like olive plants this, this is great my children I was trying to make a joke of my children being like olive plants because I'm not sure what that means. But <laughs> but I, my, my, my my niece, her name is Olivia, which is, she is a, a nickname your is, olive plant. is Olive, which that's is a great name. Yeah, I think it's like hi Olive, but I don't think she likes that nickname. But that's know. just my bet. <laughs> that's just my bet. You could ask her. I could. I should. I will. So here's what I discovered about Psalm 128. Um, it, it, the the response may the may the Lord bless us all the days of our lives. How does He bless us? Well, He tends to bless us relationally. Right. He blesses us by being in relationship with Him. He blesses us by being in relationship with others. Right. With ourselves. With the rest of creation. These these four things. It all is relational. That's the Lord's blessing. But here's what I found. So yeah, there's the surface level part about it. it. Talks about marriage. It talks about children, family life. Okay, that makes sense. That's tied into the first reading. But there's more. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it says, "Blessed are you who fear." the Lord who walk in his ways for you shall eat the work of your handiwork for you shall eat the work of your handiwork which mm. um, that's our translation that the NAB gives us 
but the word for handiwork, oh, what is it? It's ponos, I think. In, in, at least in the Septuagint, in the Greek version, in the Greek version, I think it's ponos. And ponos doesn't mean like um, just labor or or work in the generic sense. Okay. Ponos has a very negative connotation. No. Ponos is the reference point for so uh, Revelation, by the way, translates ponos as sorrow. It's painful, drudgery, difficult, grueling kind of work, Oof. which reminds me of Adam's punishment for the original sin. Remember, he says the earth is going to Absolutely. oppose you. You're going to have to labor, this particular kind of labor that's burdensome. And so it talks about the blessing for you shall eat the work of your sorrow, of your grueling labor. The world is hard. Life is difficult. But if you keep at it and you actually are able to live with and sort of even, even not conquer, but through God's grace deal with this punishment due to the sin of Adam, then we'll actually eat the fruit of of that sorrow. Mm. We'll actually have blessing despite mm. it. It's basically this statement saying, yeah, the world is really hard. Adam broke our relationships. And because he broke it, there's a brokenness to all of creation. And so the work we do is hard. Our relationships are difficult. It's hard to maintain these things because we feel hurt. We feel victimized. We feel beat up. All of these things. Right. But if you walk in the ways of the Lord, you will eat the fruit of that labor and that struggle. Right. And blessed will you be and favored. And then it goes on to say, your wife will be like a fruitful vine in the recesses of your home. Your children like olive plants around your table. And the reason I like that and the reason I'm sort of drawn to that, yeah, there's this kind of utopian, beautiful, bucolic nuclear family, <laughs> you know, yeah. leave it to beaver world. That's that's kind of nice. But, but really what it's getting at, the thing that I'm more struck by that is that it's talking about the fruit of our faithfulness being very ordinary. Right. Not that family life is in any way ordinary, but but it is ordinary in the in the in the truest sense of the word, right? Right. It doesn't say if you do these things, you're gonna be rich and wealthy and powerful. Right. And a huge deal and famous. No, it says you're gonna have these simple things that make life worth living. You will have relation. You will have family. There will be children. You will be able to eat the fruit of your labors. You'll have enough to eat at night. You'll be able to feed each other. You will be in relationship. That's what that's what the good life is actually meant to be. That's what it's meant. It, it doesn't promise riches or power or wealth or fame, right. Right. all of which tend to corrupt anyway. Right. It promises these small things that might seem insignificant, but it's like, no, this is the good stuff. This is what Adam was given. Right. Relationship, the fruit of his hands, being able to work and actually see produce come from it and have relationship, have family, have companionship. That is what blessing really means. That's what God means when he wants to bless you, which I just, I, I thought was really beautiful and the way it related back to Genesis. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, there was a, there was a line, there's, this is like of the, of voice season, like 11 or something. And, uh, there was a gal giving a tour to, she was working on a, um, she was working on a, a musical and she was giving advice to these like voice, voice final contestants. Okay. And she just said something to them. I think it actually might've been, um, Jennifer Hudson, but she just said, just remember, it's not how good you are. It's how good you are to work with. <laughs> and mm. and and it was this it was this moment to mm. where like yes do we struggle in our work do mm. and yeah, of course we all are be kind because everybody you meet is fighting a hard battle right um right. now are we hard fighting a hard battle for relationship mm. cuz mm. this is the thing is that you could be the most successful person in the whole universe and 
and and actually be really lost because you're not Absolutely. actually trying to relate to anybody. You're just trying to be excellent in and of itself for its own sake. Absolutely. Which is which is not actually saying I'm rooted in love and I'm no. working towards love. And and which it's looking out for number one. It's which looking at our culture values. Right. And it doesn't and, matter who you step on to get there. Right. You gotta get there. Right. And that's that's actually where where you can where I just think it's so essential. Like I, it was just one of those like those comments that was offhand that, that really has changed my life. Like, are we actually good to work with? Or because because mm. if you're good to work with, you're gonna become better because you're gonna have the proper orientation. You're gonna have a proper personalism. Yeah. That's what we're talking about with John Paul II. He says, "What is an adequate anthropology? Right. Like who is man? And 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 because we're gonna have to work hard. Right. Like like and if you, and if you've given up, I mean, there's the, then you're you know you're not even gonna be good to work with because right. you're you're not even working. Right. <laughs> not, right. Not much less work with. And that's. Right. That's where I think what, that brings me to Hebrews. That's a perfect segue to Hebrews, actually. Because what what is Jesus doing? He's becoming less than everything. He yeah. he says, well, for a little while he was lower than the angels. Yeah, like he he humbled himself. While. He humbled himself. Why? So that we could actually digest the like. It's not that God was. God can come mightily and work in whatever way that he chose. Of course. He's, he could have just zapped it all and put hit the reset button and make a utopia. Could he have? I don't know. I mean, you I could mean, speculate. I mean, it's God is he God. He could create nice things, but utopia implies our own interior disposition towards something. Right, but right? We, there wouldn't be love. Right. Then is it actually a utopia or is it just robotic? Right. I mean, because because what, what it does is it says that there's no relationality. Right. He says, I'm going to humble myself. Why? So that you can see that I will become victim. Well, so that you can have life. Yeah. But before that, before he becomes victim, he actually enters into a different kind of relationship. And that's fundamentally what he does. Right. We are meant to be in relationship with God. Right. We totally blew it and blow it continuously. So he says, you know what? I'm going to come and I'm literally going to get in your face. Not in the negative sense, but like <laughs> I'm going to, I'm abstract. Right. And God knows that I think it's easy for us to abstract God. Right. And make him this distant reality. So he's like, I'm going to come. I'm going to be lower. I'm going to humble myself eventually to the point of death on the cross. But even before that, I'm going to simply humble myself to be in physical human relationship with you. Because you need that as a brother. And I will walk with you. And I will accompany you. And I will heal you. And I will be there. But fundamentally what he's doing is making himself low in the sense of being like us. Right. In all things but sin, right? Right. And then eventually it will culminate in the cross. And the uh, you know um, salvation will become perfected through his suffering, right? But it really is all relational. But it's, per- but it's perfected, yes, because exactly. it's because it, it's begun in a relationship so that we can understand. And then he shows how he has been in relationship forever, so yeah. that we can yeah. like like this is what we started talking about is in in history today, is yeah. to saying like yes, we actually have had to work been we've had to work on this forever. And we're going to have to continue to work on this because it's it's the same problem that we have is like as as humanity, it's easy to become conceited and selfish and to just start looking to ourselves rather than to go out of ourselves and to look to another to say who who is in front of me? Yeah. Who are you, God, in front of me? Who are you, brother, in front of me? And to, to take that seriously, I mean, that's like what the project of JP2 is looking at is what an adequate anthropology is to study man and to say, who 
who are we in relationship to God and to the created universe? And and how do we actually answer some of this fundamental loneliness? And that's like, that's where, no, there is a relationship that we were really called to work on. Yeah. Which which is interesting. I mean, are you gonna, do you want to stay here? Do you want to move on? I want to move on. Me too. Um, if that's okay. Because I, well, no, it, it, it's a perfect segue yeah, yeah, because, so it, perfect. because what we're looking at is like, okay, we're looking at divorce here. Yeah. This is the, this is the sermon on divorce from Jesus. Yeah. Which is, there's a lot of different ways to, to kind of look at this. This is when Jesus, yeah, gets real about divorce, says it's not allowed, which is difficult for a lot of people to hear. And there's a certain Catholic understanding. There's room for, you know, marriage is not there's a, there's room for what we call annulment, where it's not that everyone's sort of stuck in the situation that they're in. There's there's um, there's caveats, I suppose, but it's not divorce. And but but I want to put it in a little bit of context. So this is um, we're in the middle of what is called the Way of the Lord section. So the the big theme of Mark is this way, the road, the hodos. W H traveling. W H E A Y way. 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 Like curds and whey. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> yeah, the, this the is the way of the Lord. Because <laughs> he's lifting a lot. Uh-huh. Um, anyway. He's been he's been lifting a lot. <laughs> but the thing that's been happening, and we've seen in the last few weeks, is that Jesus keeps speaking about what's going to happen to him. This is what I... Are you... No. <laughs> Jesus keeps speaking about what's coming, where this road is ultimately leading, which is Calvary. Yeah. And he keeps being very clear about what's going to happen. The disciples keep being shown to be blind and deaf to it. They don't understand. They don't want to hear it. They don't get it. And so Jesus continues to teach in more and more difficult ways, um, trying to show, you know, what this is all about. Uh, so in the midst of this, and, and, and people are attacking him, and they're criticizing him, and they're trying to call him out, and the Pharisees and the scribes are there, and they're like, what, what's wrong with you? And your disciples don't wash their hands right, and you know, everything's going haywire. Right. So here's the Pharisees. They show up again. They're challenging Jesus. And here's, here, this is interesting to me. The Pharisees approached Jesus, and they said, is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? And then it says they were testing him. Here's what's kind of interesting about that. Is it lawful under Jewish law in the time of Jesus for a husband to divorce his wife? Well, the question is, is, is it for any reason whatsoever? Is it lawful? I don't know. Yes, is the answer. Okay. And Jesus actually says it, right, in the next couple of lines. He says, Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce. Right. It was, a per, it was permissible. It's in Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 24. Okay. Moses permits it. it, it actually, it's interesting. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Moses actually doesn't give a command on this. He creates a stipulation where this is possible under these circumstances for a husband to write a bill of divorce. But I'm struck by the fact that the, the, the Pharisees know the law, right? They know it inside and outside. They've created laws on top of laws. They are the experts of the law. So they know perfectly well what the answer to this question is. So it's interesting to me that the, that the Pharisees go up to Jesus and they say, hey, is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? Which they know the answer is yes. So if the answer is a blatant yes that everybody knows, why are they asking Jesus this? Isn't that kind of weird? Mm. I was actually struck by that today. Mary Healy points that out in her commentary. But I was a little bit struck by that because they know the answer. Yeah. So are they are they messing with him? Like, are they testing him? It's, it's pretty blunt in, in Deuteronomy 24. And I bet, I bet they've heard Jesus talking about this relationship before. I bet they've heard, or maybe even rumors, hey, Jesus is undermining the Deuteronomic law. Jesus is undermining what Moses permitted. And he's talking about how divorce is not legit anymore. Because, I mean, as you know, even here at the parish, you say, 
a few different masses every weekend. So you have essentially the same homily a few different times. I'm sure Jesus right. is preaching the same things over and over again in different places to different groups of people. So they're probably hearing about this. Right. They've probably heard he talked about this. So they know perfectly well what the answer is from Deuteronomy. But they're testing him. They're like, what is he going to say? Because we've heard that you were undermining what the what what Moses taught about this. Right. You know, it's like... Um, I don't know. I've been trying to think of an analogy. And I, I, all of my analogies are going to fall short. But hey, that, that, that much makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So they're it's messing clear. with him. And Jesus is like, well, what did Moses say? What did Moses command you? Which, again, it's interesting that Jesus chose the word command. Because Moses doesn't command. The Pharisees are taking it that way, or at least they seem to be, right? Right. But they said, well, he permitted it. He permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce for his wife and dismiss her. And Jesus told them, well, guess what? It was because of the hardness of your hearts. Because the command that's important that Jesus framed it that way. No, it's not a command, it's a permission. It's a it's a concession. Concession is actually the best way to look at it. This is not the way it's supposed to be, but Moses concedes it for a period of time. Deuteronomy, we've talked about this a million times, right? The whole nature of the book, the name of the book, Deuteronomos. Deutero means second, nomos means law. It is in a certain sense a sec it's not secondary in the sense it's less important. But it's not the first law. There was a proto-nomos. There was the Ten Commandments, which talked about these things and these relationships. Moses concedes this because of the hardness. And, and notice that Jesus doesn't say because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the hardness of the hearts of the people in the time of the Exodus, because of the hardness of the hearts of Israel in Moses' time. He says because of the hardness of your hearts. Mm. He makes it in the second person plural, which I think is significant. No, it's your hearts that are hard. There's two. And therefore he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. And for this reason, a, mother, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He quotes Genesis, the two, long, two are no longer one. No, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, no human must separate. Hmm. It's interesting. The, the, the bill of divorce, the word bill mm. is biblion. The certificate. A book of divorce or a certificate of divorce? Yeah, a yeah, certificate of divorce. But I just think it's it's an interesting thing that we actually call this the Bible. <laughs> yeah, the, the certificate. Yeah, the, the certificate. <laughs> that's uh, it's, it's just a why. I just am like looking at this and I'm going, hmm, that's strange. Yeah. What Jesus is doing is it's it's a couple things. Um, first of all, he says, yeah, so in the house, that the disciples are kind of freaking out about this as they are one to do, right? Yeah. They're like, what is it? What are you, what are you saying here? We're a little confused. So they go in the house. Because men and women's relationships have always been strained. Because men and women's relationships have always been strained. Because there is a, an otherness, and it will always be that way. We There is otherness between man and woman. Absolutely. Which, um, this is what original sin is. It's a breaking of relationships. We break our relationship with God, but the fruit of that is broken relationships with each, with each other. And with ourselves. And with ourselves and with the rest of creation. This right. is what happens. So as a result, we're stuck with all of these broken relationships. Right. So Jesus is saying, no, in the be we got to go back to the beginning. Because, yeah, there's sin. And, yeah, there's consequence for sin. And, yeah, there's penance that has to be done for sin. And there's ways that we have to deal with the fact that we stink and we fall on our faces and we mess up a lot. Right. But the stipulations for how we are to deal with our utter brokenness, there actually needs to come a time when we mature beyond, when we actually get beyond our rules that we had when we were little children. 
Hmm. We actually have to mature. We have to right. grow up and be the adults that we're called to be. The problem with Israel is that Israel never was able to mature. Right. So what does Jesus do? He says, I will take on the identity of Israel. I will give you the maturity if you are connected to me to actually live these things out that seem impossible. Right. You know, Paul actually makes this big deal in the New Testament. He says, why did God wait so long to send a Messiah? Like, why is there so many years of this law and this brokenness and these commandments that we can never follow and this just constant falling on our face? And he says, the reason is that so that sin can be shown to be sin. Mm. He says, the Old Testament lasts for so long, partially so we can see that we really can't do this for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix our own brokenness. And the law of the Old Testament is this dramatic spotlight onto that fact. We cannot do it. And so there's stipulations and there's permissions and there's concessions, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. God will work with us where we are. Right. And that's a big part of the story of the Old Testament. He will work with us, but he doesn't want to leave us where we are. And so Jesus comes and he says, no, now it's time to grow up. Now it's time to be the people that you are called to be. Marriage is indissoluable. Again, there's there's room in the Catholic understanding for marriages that maybe were never actually rightly entered into. And right. That wasn't really a marriage. There's room for it. Annulment's not just Catholic divorce, which I've heard it called before. It's this idea that, no, maybe there was never really a marriage there, which is a conversation for another day. Yeah, and, but and, a marriage is indissoluable. Jesus is affirming that. Right. And, well, and this is one of the hard things is like I talk to couples about how you know infidelity in marriage yeah this is one of those crazy things to where somebody does something and you're like this 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 cannot stand and i'm like it doesn't this is the hard part yeah. is that it doesn't break the marriage yeah the the relationship might be ruined yeah you might not actually be able to be in relationship within each with each other anymore right. but it doesn't That's mean real. that the that the marriage is over we we actually like this this is one of those hard it's tricky that it's really tricky and that's why i'm like that's why i'm like the, the consequences of our actions are real yeah and you cannot just break relationship yeah like that and i'm like on, on a rare occasion you actually can have somebody come back from that yeah. if there's honesty cuz yeah. cuz like it's it's dishonesty to oneself and dishonesty to somebody else else that ultimately is this powerful breaking relationship and then and that's actually where we come before god and we can be dishonest before god too absolutely and we are all the time <laughs> we are all the time and that's actually where like where i look and it's it's saying like how do we actually come back from the brokenness that we have in our relationships because yeah. that's actually one of the most frightening things that w we can face Absolutely. And and how we actually need other people. We cuz cuz I give counsel all the time to folks to try to help them in the midst of the brokenness that they have. But one of the things that St. Paul continually talks about is that this this image of marriage is an image for how we can understand the divine life. Absolutely. Is that it's analogous for the life of the Trinity. Right. It, it, and how God is actually treating his people. So when we're t we start to talk about marriage, he's saying, I've written fundamentally into the nature of humanity, into this anthropology. I've yeah. written fundamentally the need and the answer. Yes. And that answer we can see as a foretaste of how we're supposed to relate to God. And so Absolutely. that foretaste actually needs some sort of um, some sort of uh, a rooting. Um, and, and that's why we actually talk about these things, because it's really meant to speak about what God's relationship is to us, because yeah. he's saying, 
I'm not going to break this. Yeah, we are. We are bound forever. Yeah, we are in that. I am in this We're with in you it. until the end. <laughs> yes, and and I am going to work for your redemption, Eve, in the midst of this specifically, so that, yeah. um, so that as I call you brothers, as I am am in relationship with you, I'm not leaving. I'm right. not going. Which I'm not going to abandon you to this fundamental loneliness. And you don't have to be afraid of that. That if I if I really mess up, if I'm kind of a jerk, maybe he's going to take off. Right. God's like, no, you never have to fear that. Right. You can be a jerk all you want, and I'm not going. Right. Which which, which societally and secularly, that's exactly the opposite. Yeah. They will shame you. They will yeah. break you. They will abandon that's you. That's the fear. And well, you will be alone. And you will be alone. That's it. And that's actually what that's actually what I, I find the fevered pitch of our culture right now mm. is is actually trying to enact that. It is. It and is. to capitalize upon that, which because is we're not all so Christian. afraid. We're all so afraid of it though. It's such a deeply rooted fear. Mm. We want to do it before it's done to us. Right. In a certain sense. Right. Two really quick things. We've got to wrap up. Um, one thing that, Mo- that Jesus says here, he adds when he's speaking to the disciples about this question of divorce, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That seems like one of those things like, okay, that makes sense with the divorce thing. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He has actually changed the cultural understanding by saying those words. We talked about equality between the sexes earlier with Genesis. In that worldview, and this isn't a, a, a really a law. It was This was Roman law. This was how it was understood. Only a husband... Only a wife could commit adultery because the husband basically was understood that the wife was kind of property. Hmm. And so he really couldn't do anything wrong. It was her who would commit adultery against the husband. But this is saying, no, if a husband does this, then he wrongs his wife because she has personhood too. And she has dignity and she is an equal to him. So he has actually said something profoundly societally important Hmm. in that, in the idea of the equality of the sexes. No, she can be wronged by you. Which was just a not an understanding prior to that. Right. But the other thing I want to say, so that's a bit of a side note. The other thing I just want to say, and this is my last point. Um, we talked about how this is in the middle of the section where Jesus keeps telling them what's going to happen to him. They keep not understanding, and then he will begin to teach them about what life is supposed to look like. The disciples are constantly being shown as, yeah, they, first of all, they don't understand But then they constantly are shown to be like, they're always talking about who's the greatest one, who's going to get the nicer throne at his right and his left hand, who's better than who. They're always talking about how great they are. They are always even... um, uh, physically, they're walking ahead of Jesus. They're 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 going on their own way. Right. But then here in chapter ten, chapter ten is the longest teaching section that Jesus gives in Mark. You don't get a lot of the words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. It's more action. Mm-hmm. This is the longest teaching section, and in the longest teaching section, he talks about three things. He talks about marriage. Right after this, he talks about children. Right, let the little children come to me, and then right after that, you get the story of the rich young man. So he talks about money. So in the longest teaching section in Mark's gospel, Jesus talks about marriage, kids, and money. And at the end of talking about marriage, kids, and money, guess where the apostles are? It says they're all scared and walking behind him and terrified. Oh, wow. Which nothing else that he has said has actually had that effect on them. Even they just being missed. murdered and, and <laughs> yeah, dead. Didn't do it. But then he talks about marriage, kids, and money. The kind of everyday nitty-gritty stuff of life. And that kind of wakes them up and they're like, Oh boy. And it says they're walking a few steps behind them because they're like, I don't, I don't know about this, which I just think is so interesting. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll lose it again. They'll talk about who's great, you know, in a chapter or so. But there's something about how Jesus is like, no, this is real life because you may be able to 
abstract the idea of the crucifixion. Right. You may abstract this concept of martyrdom and living for the face and all these kind of big ideas. But you know what's not abstract? Everyday life, your everyday relationships that you have right. to deal with day in and day out. Right. That's real. And that's where the cross is. And that's where the challenge is. And that's precisely where I want to bring my healing. Mm. And that's what begins to freak him out a little bit because it becomes real. Right. So that's my last thought. That's a great last thought to end on. My goodness. Wow, this is, um, yeah, like well, I walk behind the Lord because he, uh, he is. Because uh, he ain't leaving us. He ain't leaving us. And he loves us. And he's going to walk through all of my sin to, to win my heart and to win the world and to draw us into the fundamental unconditional love that he pours out for us. May we open our hearts to him like for real. Amen. And be honest. Amen again. God bless you all. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.